2: Lexicon Valley is brought to you by MailChimp. The people behind MailChimp appreciate a clear voice, an intentional tone, and just the right word. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone.
1: From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast About language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 29, titled 30 Million by Four, wherein we discuss why talking may be the single most important activity you can do with your baby. Except for, you know, feeding it and changing its diaper. Okay, the third most important activity you can do with your baby.
2: Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. Yourself? I'm great. I want to give a shout out to a guy named Jonathan Rimmer. I don't know Mr. Rimmer personally, but last month he wrote what I thought was a very astute and flattering analysis of Lexicon Valley on his blog, Brill Skills. I'll read just a couple of passages from it. He writes, It seems that producing the kind of effect that Lexicon Valley achieves of a discourse that is both conversational and insightful requires a great deal of expertise, preparation, and careful editing. It's a sort of conjurer's trick where a great deal of effort is expended to hide the signs of the effort itself. Wow, that is so nice.
1: And he is exactly half right. You work very hard to make your contribution seem effortless. And I expend no <laughs> no effort whatsoever. But, it, you know, it's always nice catching up with you every
2: week. Well, let me set the record completely straight. I do, in fact, do a good deal of editing. But about 50% of everything I cut out is just you, Bob, fumbling for a word that you can't think of. How ironic. Because you were just doing that a minute ago. But, of course, nobody knows that. I cut it out.
1: Oh, and also because our show is about words. Yeah. I just, right.
2: you know, I I
1: like words. I just can never...
2: I think another 25% is your phone ringing while we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. One more passage from Mr. Rimmer. He wrote that Lexicon Valley, despite focusing on language and grammar, shies away from finicky grammar Nazi prescriptivism to explore, even revel in the ambiguous, always changing nature of real world language. The hosts aren't afraid to offer up opinions, with Bob Garfield usually adopting a deliberately reductive or conservative attitude to contrast with Mike Volo's more nuanced and progressive explanations and put both to the test.
1: Yeah, he pretty well has us pegged. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In fact, on my um, 1040 form for the IRS under occupation, I have foil.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I predict that today's episode will actually be foil free.
1: Yep, I think that's exactly right. We are talking about early childhood education and uh, some (laughs) really eye-opening research.
2: Yeah, today's episode is about a subject that has gotten some significant attention in the press in recent months for a reason I'll explain a little bit later. But I want to begin about 50 years ago in January of 1964, January 8th to be exact, the very first State of the Union address by Lyndon Johnson. Just a month and a half after Kennedy was killed, here's Johnson in his inimitable Texas Hill Country accent with what you might call the takeaway from that speech.
1: And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America.
2: Now, in the first year or two of Johnson's presidency, A slew of initiatives were launched as part of this war on poverty, some successful, some not. For example, there was Medicare and Medicaid, the Food Stamp Act, Job Corps, and in the summer of 1965, the Head Start program. Now, the theory behind Head Start was that low-income kids were entering kindergarten and first grade already behind, not as school-ready, to use a jargony phrase, as more advantaged kids. And Head Start programs were intended to help these kids catch up. Uh, it's interesting you use the term
1: catch up. And since Head Start is a period of schooling before the, the commencement of formal schooling, the question is catch up to exactly what? What did the Johnson administration have in mind?
2: Well, in fact, a couple of psychologists at the time at the University of Kansas wondered precisely the question that you raise. Their names were Betty Hart and Todd Risley, and they said, okay, these Head Start programs assume the existence of some difference, delay, or deficit relative to a norm. And they wondered, well, what is that difference? And they felt confident that if they could just figure out what the deficit was, what the skills were, as they put it, that these disadvantaged kids were lacking, they could just teach it to them.
1: Now, 40 years later, Head Start is one of those federal programs that is never on the table. And yet, you know, like many aspects of Johnson's War on Poverty, hasn't really done the job. There are there's still these huge achievement gaps from underprivileged kids relative to kids with more stable economic backgrounds. Do these researchers offer any insight into Why this problem continues to be so intractable?
2: Well, let me tell you about some very early research that they did in the 1960s, right around the time that Head Start was starting, that gets at the reasons why the program has not worked as well as we may have hoped. So I mentioned that Hart and Risley were at the University of Kansas. They identified two preschools in the Kansas City area with very different socioeconomic populations. There was the Turner House Preschool in a very poor neighborhood, and it was attended by mostly low-income children. Then there was the Laboratory Preschool at the University of Kansas where they worked, attended by mostly professors' children. And so they wondered what was observably different about the kids in these two preschools. So here's what they did. They recorded a group of children from each of the two preschools during their free play period – once a week over the course of the preschool year. And here's what they observed. I'll quote from their writing. In both settings, the children asked questions, made demands, and described what they were doing. The difference was in how much talking went on. Most of the professor's children talked at least twice as much as the Turner House children. They talked about more different aspects of what they were doing. They asked more questions about how things worked and why.
1: So the professor's kids were a whole lot more verbal
2: than the kids from the uh, the disadvantaged population. Yeah, that's right. And the rate at which the Turner House kids would acquire new words over the course of that preschool year into their vocabulary, in other words, the rate of their vocabulary growth was markedly slower than the rate at which the professor's children were adding words. And they said projecting the growth curves into the future we could see an ever-widening gap between the vocabulary resources the Turner House children and the professor's children would bring to school. Well, there's two possibilities for why that would take place, assuming their observation is
1: correct. The first is that the quality of instruction and the level of attention was significantly greater at the laboratory school run by the education faculty. And the other is that something else was at work. What did the researchers do?
2: Before we get to what else may have been at work... Let's just note that they have now identified a difference, which is what they set out to do. They've identified a language deficit in one population relative to the other. And as I mentioned, they felt confident that they could catch these disadvantaged kids up. So what they did was for the following preschool year, they took a group of the Turner House kids on a whole series of field trips every week and then they held rigorous discussions before and after the trips in an attempt to expand their outlook, expand their vocabulary, which they found that they could do successfully, but to their great dismay, not beyond those specific experiences. So if they
1: took the kids to the zoo, they could teach them a bunch of animal names and zooy words, but it, it wouldn't accelerate their acquisition
2: of words outside of that particular field trip. Exactly, and I'll paraphrase from Hart and Risley. They said, We had been so sure we would change how the children responded to the world, but we saw that by age four, patterns of vocabulary growth were already established and intractable. We could not accelerate the rate of vocabulary growth beyond direct teaching. We could not change the developmental trajectory. In other words, by that time, it was too late. That's heartbreaking, And astonishing, because I think linguists
1: till now have understood that language acquisition is, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but instinctual, that it just happens that the mind is predisposed to develop language.
2: That is what linguists have thought, and we'll get there. But why is it so important that it's too late at this point? Well, the use and growth of vocabulary among kids at this age tracks very closely is, you know, a good predictor of your cognitive functioning down the road. In other words, your future problem-solving ability, analytical skills, reading comprehension, memory, language facility, these are the whole panoply of ingredients that comprise what we might call, you know, high cognitive functioning – Or, you know, what we might call just being really smart. And if you don't have the building blocks by the time you're four, it's game over? Well, as Hart and Risley discovered and as the Head Start program has discovered time and time again, it's really difficult to catch kids up once they reach that age. You can't just take six or eight weeks before kindergarten or first grade and change the entire future cognitive trajectory of those children. You just can't do it. I mean, of course there are outliers, but in general, you can't do it. On that note, let's take a quick break. Lexicon Valley is sponsored this week by MailChimp. If you have a business, big or small, and regularly send out newsletters, product updates, event invitations, announcements of any kind over email, then MailChimp will help you design, create, send, and track all of it. They'll even help you market your newsletter on social media. To read more about the company and the services they provide, go to MailChimp.com. That's MailChimp.com.
1: All right, Mikey, uh, you left me despondent about the prospects for these four-year-olds with deficits that they're destined never to overcome. Where do they come from, and is there anything that can be done about it? according to these researchers.
2: Okay, so Hart and Risley were left with a conundrum. They wrote, paraphrasing, the vocabulary growth rates we saw in the preschool kids seemed unalterable even with intervention by the time the children were four years old. As you pointed out, that's heartbreaking, right? But then what is the logical next question?
1: The logical next question is, how can you intervene before the kids are four to prevent this deficit from forming, I guess.
2: Yeah. What they asked was, well, what's going on in the several years before kids even get to preschool that would account for these differences? What's happening in the home, which is where most kids spend most of their time before entering school? So Hart and Risley devised what ended up being a decade-long project in order to answer that question. They started out by in Kansas City, cold calling people who had placed birth announcements in the newspaper. They approached friends of friends who were expecting. They went through the state register of births. They recruited families for five, six months and finally settled on 42 families in the area, 13 families that were upper socioeconomic status professionals, 23 who were middle to low socioeconomic status, like skilled laborers and working class people, and six families that were poor. They were on welfare. All had a child who at the beginning of the study was seven or eight months old. Once a month for the next two and a half years, an observer, somebody who was trained by Hart and Risley, would go to the house and record whatever was happening around that child. Not only would they record for an hour, but they would take extensive notes that could then be matched up against the recording. So if there were multiple adults in the room, they would note who was talking. Were they talking to another adult or directly to the child? Once the child began to talk, who was the child talking to? What were they doing while talking? In other words, a kind of three-dimensional panoramic view that the audio recording alone wouldn't capture. All of this, more than 1,300 hours of observation, was transcribed, typed up, and analyzed. This took years.
1: Mike, we've spoken on this show before about the observer effect. All of a sudden, you're injecting a third party into someone else's household. Were these observers like wallpaper? Were they like family members How did they affect the environment they were ostensibly there to uh,
2: record? Well, they began observing well before the children could even talk so that the family could acclimate to them being there very early on. And they met with the family, got to know them. They tried to match up an observer who was of a similar kind of socioeconomic and racial type as the family so that they would feel comfortable around them, they sort of took all of that into account. Now, I'll give you some statistics that came out of the analysis that are pretty startling. First of all, they observed that over the course of the two and a half years, the children from the professional families heard on average about 2,100 words an hour. Kids in the working class families heard on average 1,200 words an hour, and the poor children only 600 words an hour. Wait, wait, are you talking about total words or discrete vocabulary words? Total words, just the amount, the sheer amount of talking that was going on around them.
1: Those gaps are are indeed startling. Maybe it's predictable that the more educated, more affluent people would be more verbal, but the
2: size of those gaps is, uh, it's jaw-dropping. And if you extrapolate that out to age four, the poor kids would have heard 30 million fewer words than the upper-class kids, hence the title of this episode. That's amazing. Now, all of the children from all three socioeconomic groups began talking around the same time. But again, over the course of those two and a half years, some pretty startling differences materialized. At age three, kids from the professional families had a vocabulary of 1,100 distinct words. The poor kids, just 500. These differences, Hart and Risley said, were so large and so consistent that they thought there must be some other contributing factor. They controlled for the sex of the child, for race, for whether or not both parents were employed. None of that was statistically significant. And so they wrote, the family factor most strongly associated with amount of talking was socioeconomic status. Uh, That's just massively depressing. You know, earlier I
1: said, I kind of jumped the gun. You asked me a leading question, and I my response was about not finding the root of the problem, but how to possibly to intervene. So I'll I'll ask it now. Do the researchers offer any guidance for how to intervene in this just
2: heartbreaking dynamic? Before I try to make you feel a little better, I'm going to make you feel even worse. They didn't just measure the total amount of speech around the children and produced by the children. They also measured the quality of the speech. In other words, they identified a number of variables that seemed especially important and especially divergent between the high and low socioeconomic groups. I'll give you four of them. First was the much greater variety of, in particular, nouns, adjectives, and adverbs – among the upper class parents. Okay, that's to be expected, right? They're in general much more educated. Second, the upper class parents' speech was much more likely to contain positive feedback, confirmations, praise, approval. The lower socioeconomic families far more likely to use criticism, disparagements, admonitions. Third, upper class parents were much more likely to guide their child toward a certain behavior with a question as opposed to simply telling them to do it. You know, for example, we're going to go out and play in the snow. Do you think it's a good idea to put your jacket on as opposed to just saying, put your jacket on? And fourth, and this is perhaps my favorite of their observations, how likely was the parent to respond to and perpetuate a thread of conversation that was initiated by the child? Again, much more likely among professional families. And, of course, all of these were meticulously quantified in their data and shown to be very statistically significant. So let me paraphrase again from Hart and Risley one last time. In the professional families, the extraordinary amount of talk, the many different words, the greater richness of nouns and modifiers, suggested a culture concerned with names, relationships, and recall with symbols and analytic problem-solving. In the lower socioeconomic families, the lesser amount of talk, with its more frequent parent-initiated topics, imperatives, and prohibitions, suggested a culture concerned with established customs, with obedience, politeness, and conformity.
1: (laughs) You know, Mike, there's this story I've been telling for years about something I witnessed in Central Park. I saw a dad with his... Let's say two-year-old, maybe two and a half-year-old, and the kid says, "Look, Daddy, a birdie." Uh, and these were apparently well-to-do people. The dad said, "Good seeing, Ian." <laughs> <And> <laughs> I I've always invoked that as an example of you know excessive building of self-esteem, congratulating the child for having basic vision, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but now. I realize that's based on what you've said, kind of the paradigm for the kind of conversational threads initiated by the child, amplified by the father with positive affirmation. Ian's dad, wherever you are, I've told
2: that story on you a thousand times, and I apologize. Good seeing, Ian. (laughs) Bob, you know, you've exhibited some real growth over the last several episodes of Lexicon Valley. <laughs> I think we're doing something wrong.
1: <laughs> this has to do with starting at a very, very low baseline, Mike, I think is, is what we're discovering here. But I, I attribute all of my personal growth to you. You, see, you bring to bear a nuance and a sort of native kindness that is a very positive influence on me.
2: Oh, See, that's the kind of affirmation and praise that really works in parenting. Good influencing, Mike. So Hart and Risley published these findings in a book they called Meaningful Differences in the Everyday Experiences of Young American Children in 1995.
1: uh, 1995?
2: I've only just become aware of this research in about the last 30 days. I wondered the same thing. Why did more people not know about this sooner? Hart and Risley are both deceased, so I called a woman named Lois Bloom. She's a retired professor from Columbia University who was doing similar kinds of studies with children and language beginning in the 1960s. Here's what I asked her. You know, this research is getting some attention from the press, but I wonder, you know, this research is 20 years old and it's so compelling and so fascinating. Why was it not shouted from every academic rooftop at the time?
0: from my academic rooftop. (laughs) (laughs) You're asking a question that really cuts to the heart of what academia is all about. It's a very competitive scene. Hart and Risley were working in the heartland, in the middle of the country. They were not at Harvard. They were not at MIT. They were not at Pennsylvania. They were not at Stanford.
2: They were not where you were, at Columbia.
0: Right. They were not in the mainstream, where a lot of the power is wielded in this field, So they weren't paid attention
2: to. Now, there's another sort of related reason, says Bloom, that has to do with what she called the ascendancy of the MIT theory of language. She actually used the word the domination of the MIT theory, which very simply posited what you were getting at earlier, Bob, that much of what language was about was innately determined. That kids, in fact, didn't have to hear a whole lot of language in order to acquire it. Here's Bloom.
0: So you had uh, this theory that said it doesn't really matter very much what parents do. Kids don't need all that much input. And so what Hart and Risley pointed out was that at least for word learning, that's just simply not true. The numbers of words really do make a difference for children. They do really have to hear all those words. Now, I think that eventually began to be acknowledged by the world according to MIT But they just didn't take it seriously. I mean, they just ignored it.
2: And and when you say MIT School of Thought, is that sort of a stand-in for Chomsky?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Chomsky and all his descendants. That's exactly right.
1: So I just want to make sure I'm understanding this, Mike. She is imputing to Noam Chomsky and his colleagues at MIT a kind of uh, intellectual arrogance that perpetuated what is probably a wrong theory of early childhood language acquisition that is affecting disadvantaged kids around
2: the world every day. Do I have that basically right? She pretty much said as much. This research was then largely unreported and unheralded for nearly 20 years until fairly recently.
1: Recently how? I mean, I knew that it had emerged. I didn't realize it was bubbling up from... 20 years
2: ago, what precipitated this? Bloomberg, the financial media company, has a philanthropic arm that issued this year what it called the Mayor's Challenge. Hundreds of mayors from all over the country identified some particular problem in their city and a potential solution to that problem and competed for grant money, essentially. The mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, his name is Angel Tavares, put together a pitch saying essentially let's take this research by Hart and Risley and put it to the test. The technology is, of course, much more advanced today. There's a company in Colorado that created these tiny devices that clip onto children's clothing, and they record and analyze all of the words and conversations, essentially, that your child hears or produces. These devices are called LINAS. It's a kind of acronym for Language Environment Analysis. So the mayor of Providence said, let's put these devices on low-income kids in our city so that parents can see what's happening for themselves, see the data, and we'll then intervene at a much earlier age and teach them how to improve the language environment in their home. Here's a part of Mayor Tavares' pitch video.
1: We are proposing a partnership with the state of Rhode Island's newborn screening program and home visitation services to make this technology widely available in our city. If families choose to participate, they will receive data on their child's vocabulary development as well as coaching on strategies to improve their household auditory environment.
2: So, you know, Bob, you said earlier that this was heartbreaking research and somewhat depressing. Let's end on an optimistic note. Providence won the grand prize of this mayor's challenge, $5 million. Independent academics from Brown University, my alma mater, will evaluate using a control group how effective this program is. I think of it as a kind of biofeedback for verbal health, in a sense. Mayor Tavares says that if they can demonstrate a tangible benefit, that he'll want every low-income kid in the city to get one of these LENA devices. I have a kind of special pitch for the LENA Research Foundation. Come August, I myself will actually have cause to use one of these devices. So if someone from the Lena Foundation is listening and would like to donate one to Lexicon Valley, I will report back what I learned from the device. Now, Mike, uh, you're being a
1: little indirect. Are are you announcing something to our listeners? Well, I'm just
2: saying that my wife, Laura, is expecting a baby in August. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) Now, that's news, Mike. Uh, Under the circumstances,
1: uh, will the child be named Lena?
2: Maybe. I mean, you know, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. But should the Research Foundation, the Lena Research Foundation, choose to loan – they don't have to donate. They could loan me one of these devices. I'll have to confer with Laura. But it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a better possibility than the name you
1: had been uh, pushing on on Laura for the child. And I've never really – liked it I maybe mean, maybe our listeners should weigh in but I just don't think a child should be named audible.com
2: I, I just think that's wrong <laughs> somebody's got to pay for this podcast <laughs> <laughs> well if you're out there Lena Research Foundation you know where to reach me and so does all of our listeners it's at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com that's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com You can hear all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. If you are not a subscriber of our feed in iTunes, please become one. It really helps other people find the show. I want to thank Lois Bloom. She's Professor Emeritus at Columbia University and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey, we done here? Yeah, we're done. Later, Gator.